0: Hi, welcome to Restoration Church. Pastor Rachel here. We are continuing in our series, Family Tree, where we sort of do character studies on our spiritual ancestors, those in the biblical texts that have much to teach us. And today I want to talk about Jonah. Now, you might think Jonah is a very common story, almost cartoonish in your head, but I think we're going to talk about it in a little different way than you've heard it before. The context for Jonah is 8th century B.C. Rome has been founded. Greek is finishing up this 300-year population mass migration and starting to form city-states, which would prove foundational to their future greatness. The Assyrians are at the peak of their power, and Israel, once again, is a conquered people. Enter Jonah, Ben Amittai. Now, Ben Amittai means... Son of Faithfulness, and that will prove important throughout this story. He is from the Galilean Mountains, and that means he is from the Israelites, and they are being oppressed by the Assyrians. He was a prophet under Jeroboam II, who did evil in the sight of the Lord, but who maintained peace in North Israel for 40 years due to Assyria having its hands full with much bigger problems. Now, the problem with Assyria is it was getting so big, it was starting to have internal problems. And so it was busy dealing with all of the uprisings within its own power structures that it, it could it would sort of ignore northern Israel for quite a while. Now, Jonah was a theologian. He was a sounding board for political and military matters. People would consult him, Jeroboam would, when things came up. The book of Jonah only has 48 verses, but how it has captured our imaginations for centuries. Now, it takes place at Nineveh. It's the capital of Assyria. Remember, Assyria is the oppressors. It was possibly founded by Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, described in Genesis 10 as the first on earth to be a mighty man. Nimrod was. Micah 5, 6, he refers to... Assyria as the land of Nimrod, and that's where a lot of scholars would base this understanding of Nimrod founding it. Now, Nimrod may also have been the ruler who commissioned the Tower of Babel debacle, according to extra biblical accounts. But regardless, the Ninevites were known for lusting for power ruthlessness to those they conquered if any resistance was offered they would do go to great lengths to humiliate those that they took captive they would burn houses and towns they would slaughter the inhabitant the inhabitants of those towns and then they would display the skins of the corpses very publicly the conquered nobles would be paraded through nineveh with decapitated heads of their princes around their necks it was brutal The captives were led with leashes attached to rings inserted in lips. These were not nice people. They prospered at the expense of all their conquered neighbors who they promptly exploited for their labor and their natural resources. Future prophets like Zephaniah and Nahum would relish any kind of prophecy that promised a day when Assyria would be crushed. They were hated by the Israelites. Just a few generations after Jonah, the Assyrians would ruthlessly conquer northern Israel, which was Jonah's biggest fear. Modern day Assyria is in north Iraq and southeast Turkey, and it's 98% Muslim today. Now, very often, if you think of the story of Jonah, you think of the whale. Or you think about this evangelizing unbelievers, like we've been taught since we were little, right? That God's a God of second chances when we disobey, that he sent Nineveh to tell the bad people about Jesus or about himself. Or even just this epic story of a whale swallowing a human who lives to tell, right? Was the whale the point of the story? Has the story of Jonah become like a fairy tale or a lullaby? It's told so many times that you never even stop to ask the hard questions that come up in this very difficult story. Our images are mostly cartoonish. If you even search on Google for an image, it'll be almost all cartoons. Well, let's turn this familiar story on its side a bit and let's reimagine what we think we know about Jonah. There's a lot of what not to do lessons that we're going to find here from our ancestor, Jonah. So Jonah one, I'm reading from the NRSV. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, with the exception of Elisha in 2 Kings 8, Jonah was the only other prophet called to proclaim the word of God to an enemy people in their land, to their face. This is scary stuff. I mean, knowing that you're the enemy and you're sent to the enemy country, vulnerable, already in captivity. So what does Jonah do in verse 3? But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish was our equivalent of Timbuktu. It was a southern edge of the Sahara Desert in, in northern Mali. It was a year journey by sea, a land far, far away from Nineveh. Jonah went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare, which wasn't normal. You usually paid after you got there, but he was very anxious. To get on that boat. And he went on board to go with them to Tarshish. Again, the Bible reiterates, away from the presence of the Lord. So here's a hard question. Much like our spiritual ancestor Jonah, we find ourselves fleeing to the ends of the world in order to avoid his presence, particularly when we are in a place of disobedience. Now, what might that look like us, look like on us as modern day? Christians. What are the ways that we flee to the ends of the world to avoid his presence? Now there are people who have physically fled trying to get away from God. But I think more often than not we distract ourselves, we get busy, we we start pulling away from our faith community because we don't want to answer for ourselves, we don't want to be near the presence of the Lord or even in contact with people who are seeking the presence of the Lord. We isolate One way or another, whether we do it emotionally or physically or spiritually, we flee to the furthest places away from the presence of the Lord. We are Jonah. Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Lesson one from Jonah, do not flee from the presence of the Lord. He will find you every time. The psalmist says, where can I go? If I go here, you'll be there. If I go there, you'll be there. There is nowhere we can go to flee the presence of the Lord truly. Even if we think we're getting by, even if we think we're on a ship to Timbuktu. So verse five, back to the text. Then the sailors were afraid and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And the captain came and said to him, what are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. Jonah's asleep while everything is going chaotic up above uh, up above the deck jonah's stonewalling though he's not ready to fess up he's not ready to change directions he is not primed for repentance quite yet so verse 7 the sailors said to one another come let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us and so they cast lots and the lot fell on jonah what do you what do you know Verse eight, and then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Those are some strange questions. What are you doing? What do you do for a living? Where are you coming from? Who's your people? And he says this, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. There's that phrase again, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Lesson two. Do not choose spiritual death over obedience to God's commands. Jonah chose death. Throw me over rather than repentance and obedience. As we do, we are Jonah. We choose spiritual death over and over instead of repentance and reconciliation. I don't know. Maybe he thought he deserved to die. I'm not sure. But verse 13 says this. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. And then they cried out to the Lord, please, O Lord, we pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. These sailors called on the Lord before Jonah did. Verse 15, so they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging and then the men feared the Lord even more and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These men ran towards the presence of the Lord. As Jonah was leaving and trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, these people had decided to believe and run towards the presence of the Lord offering a sacrifice, making vows. Verse 17, but the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that verse right there is what most of us know of the story of Jonah. He was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Now, Jonah's in this belly of the fish. I wouldn't say he's quite repentant yet, but he calls out to the Lord. And I'm going to read parts of Jonah too, which is the prayer of Jonah or the psalm of Jonah. Some people call it and I'll read verse one and two and a couple other verses. I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of show, which is death. I cried and you heard my voice. Verse five, the waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And then he ends with this. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out onto the dry land. It's so interesting that Jonah is still refusing to really take responsibility. Now, it's a very pious sounding prayer. Promises of religious acts like sacrifice. But it sounds like God was wanting obedience instead of sacrifice. And that's a bit of a theme in scripture that God would desire us to obey rather than our version of religious acts of sacrifice. Lesson three, prayer works, even as a last resort, praise God for all of us. Jonah three the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Note: proclaim to it, not against it. You see, God is for these lost people, not against them. Proclaim to it, not against it. Are we listening there? Verse three. So Jonah set out, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I don't know. I still feel like Jonah hasn't quite shown this air of repentance is fully turning away from. So I almost imagine he's kind of doing this in a monotone, like when you're forced to apologize. Right. Like. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Almost hoping they're not going to listen. I don't know. Again, I could be projecting here. But verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and everyone great and small put on sackcloth. So again, using our godly imagination, why would this city, this evil, reprobate city, cruel, ruthless people. So quickly, repent. I don't know, was it the sailor's version of events that had reached the shore already? You know, there's some scholars who say there had been severe earthquakes in recent days and that they were all shaken up literally and spiritually. Maybe it's just simply the priming work of the Spirit of God, that when God called Jonah, he had already prepared hearts to receive him. He had already been doing that softening work that he does so well. I'm not sure. Moving, moving on to verse six. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Now sack, sackcloth, it was thick and itchy. It kind of had this sense of humility to it. It was a renunciation of anything, any creaturely comforts, right? Verse seven. And then, The king of Nineveh had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Animals in sackcloth. Animals were called to fast. Seriously. I mean, they went all in. That humans and animals would cry mightily to God. It's so interesting that he put humans and animals into this equation of fasting and sackcloth. So verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. God changed his mind. How is that possible when he, the word also tells us that he is unchanging? We have examples of God changing his mind. Exodus thirty-two, fourteen, with the golden calf scenario. That God wanted to punish these Israelites for forming this calf while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments. And Moses talked him out of it. Isaiah 38, that Hezekiah was going to die and not recover. But he implored God and prayed to him. And God gave him another 15 years. Jeremiah 18 says this, the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel? Just as this potter has done, says the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind. About the disaster that I intended to bring on it. Another hard question. Can God change his mind? And if so, does that mean he is imperfect or swayed by humans or weakened in some way? We had a great conversation about this. And there's all sorts of ways that you can look at it. But he has called us to pray. He has said that the effective, the prayers of a righteous say are effective. There is some way that he partners with us. There is some way that he is moved to compassion by repentance. Lesson four, repentance is a big deal to God. It moves him to act in compassion. In this case, even to Jonah's enemies. God is moved to compassion by repentance. This is good news for us. The ultimate restoration equation sequence. Are you ready? This is a math equation. Repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation, which ultimately leads to restoration. Now, you can't have repentance without forgiveness or forgiveness without repentance. If you try to have if someone repents, but there's no forgiveness given, there's no reconciliation, is there? And that happens sometimes, you know, there are certain wisdoms, earthly, you know, worldly wisdoms that say you just have to forgive somebody for your own sake. And I get what they're saying. It's true. You have to move on. But if that person hasn't repented, it's really difficult to reconcile to them, even if you have forgiven them so that you can move on. There is something in us that wants them to say the thing that they did that hurt us so much and to repent of it, to turn away from that so that we can feel safe again with them knowing they won't do that to us and hurt us again. That's how we have reconciliations. That's how that relationship is reconciled and can move forward. If I try to have forgiveness without repentance, right? We just talked about that. But what if, what if I have someone repents? And they say, oh, I repent. I, I want to change my ways. But the other person doesn't offer forgiveness. They said, well, that's good for you. I'm glad your conscience is clear, but I don't forgive you. Again, we will not have reconciliation. It would not lead to restoration. So we have to have repentance plus forgiveness. And that will become important here in the story in just a few minutes. But here's what we want to go back to if the oppressors, if the Ninevites were more receptive to God's call to repentance than his own person, Jonah, what does that even mean? Unless we think we're better than Jonah, just like Jonah, we often abuse this notion of being God's chosen people. We are fully adopted into the family and all of the privilege that we believe that gives us the confidence that we have, and the security that we have being God's person. And we don't always extend the mercy to the other, do we? You know, I think of American history and our concept of manifest destiny similar to the Israelites and the promised land. And there was this idea that we were given America, these Europeans who were leaving Europe, Under religious persecution, that they were given this land, much like the Israelites, they equated it to the Israelites and that they were given this promised land that they had to go and basically eradicate all of God's enemies that were there. And they believed that their adopted status gave them the right to one destroy the natives here and a massive land grab. They did this massive land grab with the indigenous who didn't even understand that land could be for sale. They had such a respect for land that it was not owned by any of them. It was an easy steal. But then with this land that they had, they enslaved blacks in Africa, brought them over in chains to work this stolen land. Again, they othered these people. We have God's manifest destiny. We are God's chosen, adopted in fully God's people. And, and this is our right. And then further, they exploited the Asians for labor. They didn't allow them to come as citizens, but they brought them over to do labor to build the infrastructure for the railways and the ways to get the goods that were raised at the hands of the slaves from Africa on that ill-gotten land. Do you see what this leads us to do? This, this this, sense when we abuse our sense of being chosen, that we are chosen and no one else is? It's dangerous, right? What does it really mean to live as God's chosen people, to be fully adopted? What are the responsibilities and the obligations that come with that? Lesson five, in his image, he created them, all of them. You see, this is what Jonah didn't get. This is what we don't get. God so loved the world. In his image, he created them, all of them. Even these Ninevites were created in the image of God. Whether or not they acknowledged him as Lord, as God, whether they worshiped him or not, They were created in his image. Somehow they reflected him collectively in ways that are beyond our imagination. Here's the problem. Selfish ambition and envy and Christ-likeness, they never seem to go together, do they? Even under the guise of chosen people or manifest destiny. In his justifiable anger at the Assyrians, and let's be clear, he had the right to be angry at the Assyrians, But Jonah had lost sight of the fact that the Ninevites, too, were image bearers of God. We Americans lost sight that the indigenous, that the Africans, that the Asians were made in the image of God, that we were equal in the sight of God. We were all image bearers. These cruel, oppressive people, these Assyrians who had rained terror on God's chosen. And then they immediately respond to the call to repentance and turn from evil. God had done a work with his spirit to soften their hearts. He knew that they were going to turn towards him. Ezekiel 18 has this promise for us that I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God, turn then and live. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. In his image, he created them, all of them. Here's a hard question. How did the pagans even know what it meant to turn from evil? Is it because they were made in the image of God? I don't have the answer here exactly, but we have a conversation around that. Is it because they were made in his image? They somehow have his DNA. There's some sort of inkling, some sort of echo of good and evil. I think so, maybe. Let's get back into Jonah. Jonah 4 verse 1, but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. And now the truth comes out. Someone is not happy with mercy on behalf of Assyrians. Although he didn't mind it when he was in need of it in the belly of the fish. He was God's chosen person, right? See, we want mercy for us and ourselves and those we love. And we want judgment and accountability for them, for everyone else. We are Jonah. And where is justice in this scenario? Does God not side with the oppressed? What's the point of living, Jonah says, when injustice is not punished? And it's just so interesting. He says, this is why I didn't want to come. I knew you'd be nice. I knew that you'd forgive them. I knew that you were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you relent from punishment. This is why I didn't want to be here. What's the point of living when you, when you do this, when you just let people get a free pass. And here's another hard question. Is justice the same thing as revenge, as retribution? Why or why not? As humans, this is a hard thing for us. As God, I don't think it's so hard because he is a God of justice. But we have a hard time when justice doesn't have consequences for the people who did the bad thing, right? And sometimes it's okay that just like Jonah, we just need to rant a little bit. There are situations that are unjust. We can yell at him a little. Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting evil do this thing, Lord? You know, he can handle it. And when we're ranting and, and, and saying to God, this isn't fair it helps us a little bit to not project that sense of not fair on other humans who are caught up in these broken world systems. Just a little bit. It helps. And just a little bit. It helps us to come to a place of forgiveness. Sometimes we have to forgive God. That sounds really arrogant, but the reality is we live in a broken world, a fallen world. Sin runs rampant at times, and yet God is good, right? And it can sound like sacrilege that I have to say, okay, God, Okay, it happened. It was allowed for whatever reason that I don't get. I don't have the whole picture. I trust in your goodness. I know that you're a God of goodness, that this is not of you. And yet it has happened. We live in a world where sin has sway, where things are not as they should be, where evil runs amok. Sometimes it seems like evil is winning. This is what Jonah was feeling. This isn't fair, he says. We're already being oppressed by these people. They've taken everything. I know that if they repent, they're just going to come back and get us later. And he wasn't wrong. God called Jonah to take the message of his love to the very people who were destroying Jonah's people. That's hard stuff. And they weren't just oppressive, but they were cruel. Destructive. It makes me think of Jacob wrestling with God, contending with God for his blessing and sometimes getting that blessing, but having a limp. Right. That's Jonah in this situation. He's wrestling with God, contending. He's saying this isn't right. I want the blessing for my people, for your chosen people. I don't want the blessing for them. But see, God does what God will. And somehow In ways we don't always understand, it is good and right and just for the bigger story. Even if the lens with which we view the world doesn't see that. It's hard. Now, this is not an excuse to not call our world to a more compassionate, just way of living. Oh no. We hold the tension of both of these. We work within the corrupt systems of the world to right wrongs. We Christians should be bringing light to darkness. We should be bringing salt into every space that we go. We bring justice to the oppressed. We set the captives free. We give sight to the blind, right? We extend mercy to those who are caught up in these power structures, calling them to turn away from evil, to repent, to seek forgiveness, to find reconciliation, to save their souls. As Christ followers, the outward expression of our faith is to care for the marginalized. And these, this is attention. This is absolutely a tension to call the world to a more compassionate, just way of living, but also to extend mercy to those who are caught up in those systems and even part of those power structures. So back to Jonah. Jonah was taking God's mercy pretty hard. Verse three, and now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is seriously distraught over this display of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Verse four, and the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Verse five, then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. He was facing east because that's where destruction came from, the east. He was believing that destruction would come for this still at this moment. Imagine the complexity of realizing that the very people that God was using you to show mercy to would eventually destroy your family, your town, your people, and they would withhold mercy. Having received God's mercy, they would withhold mercy. This was his biggest fear. So, you know, he's sitting under this booth he made for himself, a bit of a tent. Maybe this was a reminder, you know, God of his cut to God of his covenant. Remember, God, we're in covenant. Exodus 19, the Israel's camped in front of the mountains and Moses goes up to God and the Lord calls him from the mountain and says this, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on Weagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall... Be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And Jonah's saying, look, remember the last time we had tents and we had a covenant? Remember the promise you made to us, God? I'm holding you to that. I'm reminding you of it. Maybe that's what he was doing by sitting there in this booth that he had made for himself that was representative of a booth from Exodus. Verse six, the Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. This is a theme with Jonah, right? Death is better than life if I have to do this thing that you've called me to do. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. And then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Should we not be concerned about the lost, the people who don't seem to have a moral compass, who don't know they're left from their right hand and the innocent animals that would suffer the consequences? I love that the well-being of animals figures so prominently in this story that God brings the stories of humans and animals together, that the animals are called to sackcloth and fasting and that the animals should not suffer the consequences so interesting. So Jonah is a story of the oppressed called upon to take the good news of God and his mercy to the oppressors, to those lacking spiritual eyes, lacking moral compass. It's a story of the power of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation for everyone, even those people. The ones who are inflicting pain on you and those that you love. We much prefer the story of Exodus and the way the waters fell on and drowned the Egyptians in pursuit. But God does not desire death or destruction for any of his created beings. He longs for them to experience the truth and the beauty and the goodness of life with him. So I just want us to sit with this for a moment the heaviness of this story, the weight of this story for us. Who might be that people or the people group who you think or you have deemed unworthy of mercy, of God's mercy, of your mercy? And I want you to lay that down before God. Trust him. Trust him that his goodness Encompasses things that we don't understand and that he wills not one to perish and that he desires nobody to have destruction. And I'm going to ask you to pray for them. Pray for them to be reconciled to God and to others. Pray for them to repent. And then you have to be willing to forgive, to extend forgiveness and be reconciled. Even if they never know who you are and it's just been something in your head and it's been some sort of more vague kind of nebulous people or a people group I'm going to ask you much like Jonah had to to lay down all of your suppositions about what should happen and shouldn't happen here and ask God to bring them to repentance to reconciliation Father God we're so much like Jonah in little and big ways Lord We're your people. And we want a little special dispensation, I suppose. A little more mercy for us and a a little more judgment for our enemies. But Lord, that's not what you are about. You are about mercy for all people. And in your image, everyone is created. So Lord, help us to look at people through that lens even if they haven't acknowledged you, even if they're doing things to harm themselves and others, Lord, that they would be so overwhelmed with your goodness, with your compassion, that they would repent and know the God that we serve. Lord, let us be patient in prayer and let us be um, generous in compassion for the people that you have placed in our lives. Lord, show us how to do this, how to live in this way that you called Jonah to live in. Lord, let us never be angry at your compassion for someone because it could be us next time. We just thank you for the story. Thank you for all the ways that it is impacting us and will continue to impact us. Lord, help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.